Hi, my name is Alex Evans, and this is Composer's Concepts. This week, I had a great chat with the producer, DJ, educator, and much more, Mr. Bill. We covered some interesting topics from music scenes in North America and Australia to spirituality and religion. Let's head over to that conversation now. Uh, well, thank you, Mr. Bill, for being on the on the podcast. Where you're where you're from, Australia originally. Um, like growing up when I was in high school, uh, I listened to a lot of metal, and I sort of found that more more of the better metal, in my opinion, was coming from Australia. So I was just wondering, like, being from Australia and then also moving over to North America, like, because seemingly you 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 have some interest in metal on your podcast. You mentioned that you're a fan of Periphery and Animals as Leaders. So um, yeah, like what. Do you do you ever attend metal concerts and like uh, do you do you prefer one scene to the others versus Australia and North America? Uh, so yeah, I did a lot when I was younger. I would go to metal concerts all the time. That was actually like the primary thing that I would that I would do for sure. In like instead of electronic music shows, <clears throat> um, and I was super into a lot of the Australian metal bands. Actually, I'm curious, like what Australian metal bands are you into? I guess like North Lane and stuff like that. Uh yeah, N- North Lane, um Stories, um they're they're sort of I think one of the guitar players from North Lane like initially managed them. Um wow, I'm drawing have a you heard of yeah. um have you heard of Carnival? Yeah, yeah, Carnival, yeah. They it's been like what 10 years since they've released anything, hasn't it? And they're um I don't know, let me check their Spotify. I'm pretty sure they put an album out a few years ago. Also, um have you ever heard of a band called Sunk Lotto? No, I haven't. Dude, that's a sick band. Um, oh, yeah, Carnival put out uh, an album in 2013, it looks like. Mm. So, yeah, it's been a while for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm super into North American metal too. Yeah, like Vale of mm. Mire and uh, Periphery and Animals as Leaders and stuff are like some of my favorite metal bands at the moment and have been for a while for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say Australia has a great metal scene too, surprisingly, um, even though the population there is so much smaller. It has, I mean, Australia has a great electronic music scene as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, like I, I, unfortunately, like not very many Australian metal bands make their way out <laughs> to North America, but, um, but well, yeah. It's, I, a, I, it's just a logistical nightmare, right? Because to do it, it's like, say you have, uh, let's say it's a small band, like three people, right? Like Animals as Leaders. Yeah. Um and you come to tour over here it's like you got to fly over with all of your guitars you got to fly over with like three people at the minimum. Yeah. And then once you get here you need like a tour bus or a van and then like a tour manager and like all this sort of stuff. It's just a, to to get from Australia over here to start touring it's just so expensive whereas if you're born here and you live here to yeah. start touring here is not <clears throat> it's not too much of a cost you know i mean it is a cost like you're still gonna have to pay for tour buses and tour managers and all that stuff but you immediately remove the cost of flights from fucking australia so <laughs> yeah yeah a, it's a big cost just saved right there mm, yeah yeah like north lane originally sort of they came over here even like an hour away from me like nova scotia which is pretty pretty uncommon especially but um like do you do you listen to north lane and stuff like that as well yeah, so actually my uh me and my brother went to school with um Jonathan Dealey, who's like the guitarist mm-hmm. of North Lane. Awesome. Do you we went to Truscott Street Public School, which is in North Ride in New South Wales. Awesome. That's cool. Um did, yeah, did do you, do you um prefer like Adrian's vocals or Marcus's vocals? I I honestly I haven't really listened to them since Adrian left, but uh yeah, I don't know the difference with that band to be honest. Um, okay. the there's a few bands that I know the difference of between the vocalists. Like for instance, um, Kill Switch Engage. I guess they switched at some point, and I think I like the new guy better, Howard. And then mm-hmm. also Periphery, I think switched a few vocalists too, right? And now they got Spencer, who's really good. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. um, Vale and Meyer, I think, have switched vocalists a few times too. And I'm I I met their current vocalist, and he's a really nice yeah, guy. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so yeah, I guess when you, when you first started working on, on electronic music, um, did you start right away with like getting into the sound design side of stuff or were you just sort of maybe initially using like soft synth presets and stuff like that? No, I, I think like when you first get into electronic music, the, the, it's so overwhelming. Jumping straight into sound design would be crazy. <laughs> yeah. 
I think I just mostly like got into it and then just started really just trying to figure out how to even make anything make a sound, right? Like whether or not that was just loading up a preset and pressing some MIDI information in or or mm. whatever. It always seemed just to me like the step number one was not like going straight for the sound design sort of stuff. It was more or less just trying to do anything, right? Mm. So that that was what I did first. Awesome. Um, and like as far as like learning how to arrange music, like did you... Were you learning from somebody at, at any points or were you like just sort of experimenting yourself with the, with arrangements? Well, I was like doing music, you know, just in general with like bands and shit like that. So I kind of already had an idea on like how to structure a song mm. and stuff like that. So that was not like a huge thing for me to have to learn once I got into electronic music, fortunately. Mm. Yeah. And you, you mentioned as well on your podcast and stuff that you're like you were firstly a drummer before you got into electronic music so were you like were you in any metal bands in high school and stuff like that growing up or any other bands of any other genres yeah i was in a few bands i was in like a metal band not not in high school i think i all, all of my bands were basically went once i got out of high school hmm. um so and i finished high school when i was 17 so i think that yeah i started joining bands and or trying to form bands at that point uh, and I formed one called Open Arcadia, which was a metal band with a buddy of mine called Chase and another buddy called Stevie. Um, Stevie's now the drummer of a band called The Dead Love and Chase is now the singer of a band called Wolf Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so that, that was something I did for a while. And then after that, I started writing sort of electronic music. I guess you could say it was like a somewhat Nine Inch uh, Nails influence project with my buddy Frosty. Mm-hmm. And we were just using like Fruity Loops and stuff like that. And then after that, I kind of just like got out of trying to do bands and stuff because they just kept not working and there was too many like issues and stuff like that. So I just started um, yeah, just doing like um, electronic music by myself but at, at that time it wasn't actually electronic music i was just using garage band on my parents computer yeah. to try and produce metal actually and then from there i started trying to produce electronic music on garage band and i was like i actually garage band at the time at least um was not really good enough for what i was doing hmm. so then i started like searching out other daws that were better for electronic music and i used fruity for a while and then i used um I tried like basically all of them. I tried a bit of Logic and a bit of Cubase and then eventually landed on Ableton and was like, oh, this one's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it I definitely seems a lot of electronic music is sort of definitely leaned towards using Ableton. It definitely seems like the best to transition for doing live stuff if you want to use Ableton for it and everything. Um, but yeah, uh, um, and as well, like I was sort of curious what your opinion was on on like subgenres within within the electronic music um, sort of scene? Like, do, do you find that as specific as sub, some subgenres are is a good thing, or do you think they're just a little too too much at this point? Or, Well, I mean, it's all semantical, right? It's like it's all just there so you can explain what you're doing to somebody else. Um, mm. It's kind of like music theory a little bit too, right? It's like, does it really matter that you're playing a C major chord? unless you're trying to tell somebody else that it's a C major chord for whatever reason, so they know what other chords to play around it or, Mm. you know, something like that. It's kind of like genre names are important maybe for categorization online. So you can, you know, I'm the end user using Spotify or Beatport or whatever. I can search like Tropical House and get what I Mm. want very quickly, you know, like uh, that seems to be what I think subgenres are good for is, is, going online as an end user or or trying to seek out tracks to dj in a set or trying to find new artists that you want to listen to and being like hey i want a industrial idm i'm feeling that kind of stuff today because i just listened to whatever a lawn album right and lawn is you know considered maybe industrial idm so maybe i'd be like all right fuck let, let me google industrial idm and see what else is in that category and then maybe i'd find out about igor and maybe i'd find out about like some other artists too so hmm. so i think in that sense like just from like a searchable sort of standpoint I, I think it's useful to have very granular um genre breakdown stuff happening but otherwise i mean you know obviously it starts a bunch of arguments on the internet because people are fucking idiots but yeah yeah i would say i don't think it's a bad thing for sure mm. um and and like with uh like when you mentioned like you know playing a c major chord and sort of articulating that to somebody um do you, do you think 
better music comes from somebody with absolutely no music theory understanding? Or do you think having a very, very deep understanding, you have the ability to make better music? Um, I think it's like a mixture, right? Like the, and I think understanding music theory, like, uh, what's the best way to explain this? I, I don't think learning music theory necessarily gives you a better understanding of music. Hmm. I think some people just have a really intrinsically good understanding of music and then maybe they also learn music theory and maybe that gets them 20% better at their understanding of music and how to make it. Some people don't learn music theory at all and that they're just amazing at making music. You know, I think it's, it's, I don't think it's something you're born with. I think it's something you can work on, but I don't think learning music theory helps you with, with the writing music bit. I think writing music makes you better at writing music. Like that's the, the practice of actually making music is the only way to get better at it. And then, mm learning music theory is just a great way to justify it yeah for sure um yeah i guess um like yeah music theory has always like been a weird thing to me because like it's it very much seems like one of those things where as soon as you sort of stop immediately using it with everything it just <clears throat> you just lose it immediately so it's, it, yeah, it's really it's really weird like there's obviously some genres more so like jazz and stuff like that that you know you can you can either approach it with no music theory at all or or very like sort of deep and theoretical view on it so mm -hmm. um yeah and um with uh like with with mixing and stuff like that for yourself do you do you find that you like prefer using headphones studio monitors like what are the pros and cons for yourself on those uh, I use both. I think that both are a nice, like you can hear distortion easier in headphones, I think, than you can on the studio monitors, but I prefer riding on studio monitors because it sounds more exciting. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, obviously studio monitors come with some concessions, you know, like pissing off neighbors and stuff like that. So sometimes yeah. headphones are necessary for that purpose. And, you know, obviously when we're doing a podcast like this, headphones are necessary. So you're not hearing the echo through my mic and all that sort of stuff. So I think both have their, their time and place. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, like with every other, every other episode of this I have recorded, uh, the other person had, um, had, had used their studio monitors when they're, when they're recording. So it's, it was kind of a pain in the butt as far as like mixing it afterwards right. uh, or editing it up. But, but yeah. Um, so yeah, appreciate the use of, the use of headphones. Um, with, uh, with electronic music, um, do you, do you find like, as far as receiving a growth in your fan base, does that come more so from actually doing live, like live sets or is it online these days? Well, I think it's a mixture. <clears throat> I think, um, some people get big just doing shows and then, you know, at a time like this, when coronavirus has stopped everyone from playing shows, they're kind of fucked, right? Hmm. Um, whereas somebody like me who's sort of a bit more versatile with my fan base, you know, I have a, you know, streaming platforms and tutorial platforms and a website with educational content and I sell sample packs and all that sort of stuff plus play shows. Hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of like a, my fan base is just more diverse and, and whatnot. And therefore in a time like this, I'm, I'm more okay. But in terms of like what makes you bigger, uh, it really depends, right? Cause I mean, somebody who's playing just shows and not they're not going to have a very big online fan base probably um whereas somebody who's just online like you know a good example might be andrew huang mm -hmm. um you know he's obviously massive online but if he went to play shows you know he might only have i mean he'd probably like sell some tickets to shows because he's just so fucking big but like <laughs> Yeah, you know, he'd probably sell out like some 500 to 1,000 person venues, but there's people who can sell out 500 to 1,000 person venues and like nobody knows who they are on YouTube. So, yeah. I, uh, but that's just because they've been touring around playing shows for so long and they haven't put any energy into the online side of things. Mm. Per personally, I think diversifying your fan base is like the, the smart move there. But obviously it's like, yeah, it just depends like where you put your eggs in which baskets. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how did the uh, like there's a few videos on his channel andrew's channel that you guys did together like there's that one where you guys just sort of worked on who could make the craziest drop and everything like that but uh like how was how was the experience working with him i know on your podcast as well you mentioned um like when you when you guys were hanging out as well you also like went and visited deadmos's house and everything like that as well but how was the experience mm -hmm. working on music with him oh it was great yeah writing music with andrew is super fun he um yeah he's he's fun to write music with man he's got a nice studio and he's mm. a hard-working dude he likes to get up early and start working and you know yeah it's, yeah. it's fun awesome 
Um, yeah, so you're you're mentioning like your how you have all those different sort of production courses, Ableton courses, the sample packs, and everything. So, what sort of was the like what sort of sparked that idea? Like, what made you sort of decide to want to um, creating courses that people could pay for and everything? <clears throat> well, I mean, part part of it was to like trying to diversify my my income streams, right? Hmm. Um, and at the time, I wasn't doing many shows when I created MrBillsTunes.com. So, so part of it was just like I had n- nothing to do and wanted to create a career for myself. So, started doing it myself that way. Um, secondly, I was doing a university course at the time, mm-hmm. and a lot of the stuff I was learning, I just thought uh, was super interesting. So, I just wanted to like regurgitate the knowledge and talk about it because, like, when we learned stuff at university. Obviously, we weren't learning Ableton. We were learning like Pro Tools, right? So I'd learn all these tricks in Pro Tools or Logic or whatever, and I'd be like, oh, fuck, you could do that in Ableton this way, and that would be super cool and useful in electronic music this way. Mm. Um, So I was just sort of like excited and stuff to talk about it at the time because I just found all of that information really interesting. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I started doing the YouTube thing, and then the the website thing sort of came off the back of the YouTube thing. Mm. And like, there's free content that you put on on your on your YouTube channel, and there's stuff that is paid content on your on your website and everything like that. What what do you how do you like diversify what is paid content and what isn't? Usually, YouTube stuff is like obviously music I upload there. Um, as far as the tutorials, it's just sort of like shorter tricks and tips and stuff like that, where I'm just sort of like you know whatever here's a tip or a trick, just like a quick thing like here's how you calculate delay times or like you know here's how phase works or something like that whereas the website content is more all-encompassing it's like here's how to write a whole song from start to finish and then instead of being a 10-minute video where i show you one trick it's like a 13-hour video series where i show you how to write a piece of music from start to finish including Mm. like mastering and distribution and all that awesome um that's really cool um yeah so uh like what what um what have been like the the successes with that do you find more people gravitate to just watching your youtube content or has the uh like the instructional videos you're mentioning been pretty successful as well well it's like different right like some some people don't really want to know how i write a song from start to finish or, or they don't care what every single knob on every single device in ableton does or they don't you know they don't care about these <coughs> really huge all-encompassing courses they don't want to do an entire university degree on ableton Instead, they'd prefer to just, you know, watch a 10-minute video on how shit works on, you know, Ableton. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just like a quicker fix, kind of like, oh, I'm bored whilst eating my lunch. I want to watch a quick video. So, like, you know, that's, it's more for, for that kind of crowd, I suppose. Whereas, and then some people probably get into it through, through me doing that sort of stuff. And then perhaps they're like, you know what, it would be cool if I could maybe um you know learn a bit more about this and then they find out about the website and go down that rabbit hole and stuff so i think it's just a different kind of people looking for different kind of things out of their entertainment you know some people are watching for an just for entertainment purposes slash just to learn a little bit more about what they're doing and and other people want to go right down the rabbit hole and and learn everything about ableton Hmm. um yeah i'm i guess we, we can jump over to film scoring as well um as far as what I was able to find on Spotify and everything like that, you you did the the uh, the mom and the mom and dad film there with with Nicolas Cage in it. Um, mm-hmm. So how did that project come in? Did they did someone approach you, or did you sort of like audition for for the that film? Yeah, Brian Taylor just hit me up um, through email one day. It was just like, hey, do you want to do this film? And I was like, yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, and yeah, so I just did it and. Oh, I actually had him on my podcast recently and we talked about this. I was like, how would you like recommend anybody else getting into doing this? And his answer was just like, I have no idea. Like I'd make films and I just hit the guy up who I want to do the film. So you, as far as I'm concerned and as far as Brian Taylor is concerned, mm. the way you get into it is just wait for an email and hope that somebody does email you. I'm sure there's like more tangible and like real world things you can do to make that make your chances higher of that happening. But I don't really know what they are, to be honest. Yeah, as far as I was aware, like the the more like purist film score composers, like for some reason there there seems like there's sort of a divide or like a, a hate towards like DJs and producers as far as them like composing for films. Um, like uh, I know like Junkie XL, he was originally a DJ as well, and he he like he sort of broke in and now he's just sort of a full time film composer, but. Um, 
you you never really experienced any of those sort of any of those sort of backlashes or anything like that being a a producer and a DJ first? Uh, no, I don't think so. And I think maybe, well, for starters, the team that I worked on was super small. It was like me, Brian Taylor, and two editors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so no, not not really in that sense. Um, and secondly, I think like you know, I'm I'm sort of seen not just as a producer or a DJ or whatever, you know, because mm-hmm. I do a lot of other stuff too. Like I'm also an educator, and I'm also you know I've done stuff for games before and and whatnot. So I would hope at least that like some of these people. And at this point, I'm a film scorer too, right? Because I did the film. So um, I would hope at this point that people in that industry or other industries don't just look at me that way anyway. Yeah. um, So I find like a lot of horror and thriller film scores can sort of like default to, you know, just a lot of like sort of drawn out pads and just sort of a lot of ambient stuff. So how was your, like, how did you want to approach scoring that film? um yeah so it just took a while of like talking back and forth with brian to figure out what he wanted and he sent me some scores like he sent me uh semenya morricone stuff and uh the john carpenter thing score and like just a bunch of stuff that he was like i think this is great and this would work well in the film um Mm. so i just kind of listened to that and then he also wanted me to do like my own thing and then it just took us a while to figure out that what he actually wanted it seemed like was granular synthesis right so that's why a lot of that film ended up being that way, like granular synthesized stuff. Mm. Um, like I, I, I've heard on a couple other videos, you mentioned sort of like your your whole mud pies thing. Um, <clears throat> were you sort of using that as well? That this sort of long sort of pieces of of sound design. Were you approaching it with that as well? Yeah, I would say so. So I was, um, yeah, definitely, you know, spending some time like making just long drawn out granular things and then just using bits and pieces of them in the pieces of music that I was working on. And I, I think that just extends to my process with sort of every piece of music I make at this point. Mm. Um, and, and like Joel Deadmos has also sort of appeared that he's interested in scoring some stuff for film as well. Have you guys ever ever talked about like pairing up and working on something together or anything no but i'd love to i mean he did polar that netflix series and that was really sick yeah. so yeah i would love to do something with him for sure mm. um yeah and um and like with with your mud pies as well sort of how did you um how did you s- sort of initially start discovering like making those well i you know i think everyone sort of has that experience where they listen to a piece of music and they're like fuck there's just so much going on like how how long must it take right to like articulate every single one of those sounds or whatever Mm. um yeah so you know i think a lot of producers have that uh thought at some point where they listen to something and think like how the fuck is there so many sounds going on and how long must that take to articulate all of those sounds Mm. um and therefore it's like well how do you how do you you know fix that problem like how do i make a hundred different sounds happen in the span of 30 seconds um without wasting my entire life so Mm. you know eventually if you just keep going down that rabbit hole of thought you're like well what if i just do one pass of like a really crazy synth patch where i'm just tweaking stuff like mad and record it and then just take audio cuts of it that seems to be like you know you're just front loading all the work by fucking around with the synth patch and then you know just cutting it up and sort of doing all the edit work next rather than having to tweak these little automation lines and midi notes and stuff all over the place because that would that can just take a long ass time Mm. yeah and i I could never understand the the people who are able to just sit there with their with their mouse and keyboard and just click in every single note when they're making music it doesn't seem like a creative process at that point it just seems like you're making work out of it Huh, I mean that's how I do it. Like I don't use a MIDI controller. So. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. So so how, how like how do you like how do you still find you can remain creative that way? I mean I I just my myself I just don't I can't <laughs> I can't see the the appeal in it myself. But obviously I'm not like bashing anything that you're doing. But I'm just curious how uh, you like to approach writing that way then. <clears throat> well, I don't think like playing notes in with a MIDI controller is creative. I mean, you know, it's, everybody does it. So what makes what makes it creative to do that? Mm. Okay, that's fair. Absolutely. Like, how do you define creativity? That's true. I mean, that <laughs> that could be a very deep conversation for sure. Um, yeah, I, I had this conversation with Adam Neely on my podcast. Um, 
And basically we came to the conclusion that creativity is thinking of doing things in a way that nobody else has thought to do them yet, right? So mm. for instance, if the common meta is, this is the example we use on my podcast, is to use the sound of a garage door closing or something like that as a kick drum in a song. Yeah. Uh, the first person to ever do that, that's super creative, right? Because nobody has thought to replace the kick drum in the song with another thing that sounds kind of like a kick drum, but is actually a Foley recording of a garage door closing. So first guy mm. to do it, that's creative because he thought of a new way to do something and an innovative way to do something that has been done already a bunch of times. Whereas if I were to then... Um, you know, be the hundredth person to to use a garage door sound as a kick drum or a basketball mm. bounce sound or just any sound. Um, that's no longer creative, right? Because I'm just doing something that people have already done. So I feel the same way about like inputting MIDI on a MIDI keyboard. It's like, it's not that creative. I mean, the first person who ever did it, sure. Yeah, that's creative. But mm -hmm. like <clears throat> at this point, it's like standard to get MIDI notes in that way. So, I mean, it's also pretty standard to write them in with a MIDI uh, with your QWERTY keyboard and your mouse. And so, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I see the, the creativity in different ways where it's sort of like, even though I'm inputting MIDI notes with my mouse and keyboard, once they're in, you know what i do with them then is creative you know stretching the midi notes and running running them through arpeggiators and running them through like midi chord plugins and you know, using gate note lengths and like logic stuff and all that kind of stuff is you know to to fuck with the midi at that point to make it sort of more generative and uh, you know turn the process of me getting midi into my computer as more of like a jamming process between me and a machine versus just me inputting stuff humanly or whatever hmm and yeah, like I was, I, I might, it might have been on a, a previous episode of this, but I was sort of like, just the, the question as well is like sort of what makes, you know, a piece of art, something that, you know, music or, a, you know, a painting or whatever, like what, what creates these price points for it, right? Because there's, there's, you know, like Mona Lisa, a very famous painting is like, you know, valued at like $40 million, but then someone else could make a painting with equal less or more you know skill and it and it goes for way more you know it's just or way well, less isn't, just isn't that just supply and demand because so many people want the mona lisa and therefore people are willing to pay more for it whereas if nobody wants the other piece of art that's even maybe has i mean highly skilled as subjective isn't it so like um mm. if nobody else wants the other piece of art then there's no demand and the supply is high I mean, even though the supply is still one, the demand is zero and therefore the price is low. Whereas with the Mona Lisa, the supply is still one, but the demand is like a million. So it's like, mm. that's why it's so expensive. That's true. Yeah. But, and, and like with, I mean, like with music albums, I mean, most of them default to like $10 and stuff like that as well. Do you, do well, you think again, it's a supply and demand thing. Like if you put the album on Bandcamp, there's an infinite supply of them. So it's like there's, the demand is never going to reach the supply. Yeah. But then, like, if you're, you know, if you're like Grammy-winning, like top-selling artists, like, do you do you think they could charge fifty dollars for an album and people would buy it just as much as someone that's selling it for ten dollars? Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, again, it's just people who who'd be willing to pay that. Um, Wu Tang did an album, right, where they just made one copy of it and they put it in an art museum and made the person buy it for like a million dollars or whatever. Oh, okay, really. Let me Google it. Wu-Tang one album art piece or something. Let's see. Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. Was this it? Um, a single two CD copy was pressed in 2014 and stored in the Royal Mansour Hotel and then auctioned at an auction house in 2015. Um, yeah, I think this was it. They made like one album. Mm. It took about six years to complete single album concept uh, yeah i would have to read this when we're not doing a podcast <laughs> but yeah i think um wait let's see auction oh here we go so on december 9th um somebody called touring pharmaceuticals oh actually the C ceo martin martin shkreli who is the the ceo of touring pharmaceuticals which is a um swedish pharmaceutical company Mm. paid two million dollars for the album Jeez, because there was only one right so yeah the only way to hear it is if you have it and <clears throat> again it's like a supply demand thing like the supply was one but it's wu-tang clan so fucking there's so much demand um well yeah i mean i i myself recently just purchased my my first pocket operator from teenage engineering um hasn't come in yet but i was just curious like what uh have you have you used any other stuff and 
like what's your opinion on them i haven't i looked at the op1 for a while that like weird little sampler thing mm. and i thought that looks cool and i thought about getting some of their stuff but after thinking about it more i was like fuck i don't know i buy gear all the time and then just like never really end up using it so mm. you know i've got like a bunch of modular stuff that i should probably learn more about before i get into any of that stuff yeah yeah, and you and you I mean you've mentioned as well that you prefer using in the box stuff more so than analog and modular, right? Is that still Yeah, honestly, I mean it's so here's a funny thing is like I have like ten grand worth of modular equipment and mm. right before we were on this podcast I was fucking around with the grid in Bitwig. So it's like <laughs> even though I have all of this modular stuff, I still am like, Oh, I should learn how to use the grid, you know. <laughs> mm. Or like V C V rack or something like that. It, it's yeah, it makes no sense to me, like how why i like stuff in the box more i think it's just more convenient and mm. I, I i think like learning it for some reason seems smarter because it's like i could be anywhere in the world and use the grid whereas i could be anywhere in the world and my modular shit is always going to be here in my house yeah did you what, what did you see uh like deadmos's huge huge synthesizer i mean i've only seen pictures but it yeah. seems like he's got like wall-to-wall yeah, I did see it actually. Yeah, it's crazy, man. He's got like every fucking possible module you can buy. It seems like. <laughs> um, did like did he did he audition it for you or anything like that? Did you hear it? No, he didn't have any patches going when I was there. But yeah, it looked pretty crazy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been interested in modular myself as well, but it's it's just so expensive to get into. Like, you can't really. I I don't think you can really get any sort of signal from A to B without spending like at least a couple grand, right? Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, it's like just to get a yeah a, a simple saw wave coming out of an output with a bit of amplitude modulation is, yeah, a couple of thousand dollars. But also, um, I mean, there's a few synth companies and, and synths that, um, that make it pretty, uh, pretty easy to do now, right? Like uh, with the semi-modular stuff like the Mother 32 or the Ocos or whatever. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of um have you heard of like the modular plugin that uh, Softube has? Oh yeah, the yeah, it's kind of like VCV rack or whatever called um fuck what's it called? I, I have it actually, but yeah, I haven't really mm. used it. Softube modular. Yeah, I think it's just called Softube modular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I I mean I I have I just have I have just the modular and I have a few of the uh a few of the other sort of pieces modules that you can get for it that they sell but i haven't really experimented with it yet it's just it's definitely can be very daunting as well and i find especially with that kind of stuff i feel like using it physically would be a lot easier myself Mm. do you um have Um, you used a vcv rack no i haven't that's like a that's like a free that's a free modular plugin isn't it yeah it's free and um from what i've heard a lot of people have told me that they think it's pretty amazing Mm um and do you like do you use analog synthesizers as well or well yeah all my modular stuff is analog but i don't really use it that much i mean i have it and i use it sometimes but probably not as much as i should i feel like i should probably use it more Mm. um and like do you find do you find the software stuff is does does like the replications of analog stuff pretty good justice these days I think so. Yeah. I mean, all, yeah, I would say so. I mean, for instance, like Boris Brescia sounds very analog in my opinion and he's all in the box just using stuff like Trillion and whatnot. So yeah, I I think so. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and like, what was, what was like your very first, like, what was the first piece of electronic music that you heard? Oh shit. That's a hard question. Probably like some hard style, like Gabba sounding stuff when I was like 10 my mom mm. used to work at a pressing plant and she used to bring home cassettes all the time. And some of the cassettes were just like Gabba cassettes and like hard style cassettes and shit. And I would listen to those and fight my brother in the front lawn to them. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, and yeah, and uh, on your last full length there, you had uh, the the track Composite 4. Um, it was Patrick Leonard was on that song. Was He, he was the one playing the piano, was he on that? Yeah, exactly, yep. Um, and like he was sort of doing a bunch of different like jazz licks and melodies and stuff like that. Like what kind do you, do you like jazz yourself? Yeah, I do. Um, so he basically, um, so he's, he, he wrote like a prayer by Madonna and he also wrote like a ton of pop music in the, in the seventies and eighties. Um, like he, I think he wrote some songs for Pink Floyd even and stuff like that. So he's like a super Mm. like inspire, like one of the pivotal guys who was around in the eighties. 
and he um yeah he he i went to his house and was working with him on some stuff and i just played the song for him twice and he just sort of jammed over it like so we just did two takes where he mm. jammed over it both times and then i just t- kind of took the cuts that i liked of both the takes and yeah honestly more of the jazzy sort of shit he was doing was like the stuff that i seemed to like more mm. Because he's like obst- ostensibly like a pop writer, so jazz is not like his first main thing. So, yeah, what like what kind of what like is there any is there any jazz bands artists that you that you like? Man, it's probably like jazz people would be like, "That's not jazz, get the fuck out of here!" But um, I really <laughs> like uh, stuff like Anomaly and Haywire and whatnot. Yeah, uh, so stuff that's like a little more sort of modern sounding for sure. And then I also. Um, you know, animals as leaders, I would consider in some ways yeah. to be a jazz band, and yeah. you know stuff like Hiatus Coyote, which is another Australian band, which I would maybe class them more as a pop band to be honest. But they have a lot of like really jazzy parts. Um, I, I like stuff that that sounds jazzy but isn't necessarily jazz, if that makes sense. Mm. Oh, actually, I also really love Randy Waldman, who is for sure jazz. <laughs> he he um does like covers of a bunch of shit like the Jetsons and all that sort of stuff and he um he'll just sort of like take these these other pieces of music and just like re uh reharmonize them in these really intense crazy ways. And I also love Jacob Collier. Um mm-hmm. I would call him a jazz artist I think or you know whatever, maybe a jazz artist. Um and I don't know if you'd call Dirty Loops a jazz art, jazz band. They're more like probably a pop band but Mm. Some somewhere between like pop and very accessible music and jazziness, I think is what I like. I think mm. when it just becomes like too jazzy for the sake of it, where it's just like playing four thousand chords a minute, just for the fucking sake of it, because you know how to. Yeah, I think some of that gets a little too challenging for me. And sometimes I'll listen to it and be like, oh, I mean, it's interesting. It's cool that they they did that. You know, like somebody's that skilled and that crazy that they could pull that shit off. That's amazing. But um Mm. at some some point i like to the music that i'm listening to to like actually sound enjoyable to me to listen to and and a lot of the time some of that really crazy stuff as impressive as it is just doesn't really tick the boxes in my brain for an enjoyable piece of music that i would sit down and listen to yeah have you have you heard of uh bad bad not good i've heard of them i've never listened to them but yeah i've um i've been told to listen to them a bunch of times yeah i mean if you want to if you want to spring any sort of conversation i mean I'm, I'm down to talk about whatever if there's anything you yeah I'm, I'm down to talk about whatever as well just i feel like anything that's sort of redundant is redundant and yeah absolutely better off spending our time talking about things like what is creativity and what is god or like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah whatever you want to talk about i mean do you are you are you a religious person do you believe in god no i'm not um i don't think that uh, it's something that i haven't really thought about enough to be honest but yeah no i'm not religious um at least not traditionally religious um but i do meditate and i well i I try to meditate every day but i don't manage to do it every day because i'm fucking lazy (laughs) um but generally i mean since meditating i think it's quite clear that everything coming into your perception is is just a, another thing popping up in consciousness right whether or not it's a sound happening or an emotion coming in or a or a thought coming into your brain or a, just anything it's like any perception perceivable thing mm. that comes in even the ability to perceive itself is like also a thing that can be observed right even having like the observer to observe the thing is another thing to be observed and you can just go so far in i feel like with like observing what it is that's actually coming into your field of consciousness Mm. and that to me is like the only obvious thing that exists because i can feel it so i mean it's hard to explain to somebody else that that exists if they haven't felt it themselves but yeah that that to me is clear um so i think i can pretty safely say at least from my own perspective that i believe in consciousness and i believe that we're all just consciousness experiencing thing experiencing things through these, these observable bodies so i guess if you put me into any uh category it'd probably be spiritual i guess mm. do you think like consciousness can be like can be 
put into a different state in any way. Like there's that, I never saw it, but there's like that Johnny Depp film that he was like, his consciousness was uploaded into a computer and stuff like that. Do you think that's sort of a possibility that technology could get to or? Uh, I don't know. That seems like a really hard thing to think about and conceptualize for me mentally. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, do you, like, I mean, where, where drugs can be considered, like, do you think that is, you know, do you think those are things that can alter perception in, in, you know, in permanent ways, good and bad ways? Uh, I mean, that's getting on to probably like biology and stuff like that, or like physiology and psychology and all that stuff. And I don't, I mean, I think, yes, they can, right? Like people who take drugs can get like, it can like bring on psychosis and stuff like that and fuck them up forever. Um, mm. So in that sense, yeah. But like, I think drugs are, you know, just a good way at changing your state of being. Um, well, you, if you if you think about your life as just like a state of what it's like to be um, versus like, you know, let's say the state of like a blade of grass and what that state of being is like and how, how would you describe that to somebody else? Then, yeah, I think drugs can like definitely change like what that state is like to be. Hmm. But yeah, they, how they, do can, you, like, they how, also obviously have like you know, health implications and stuff like that. So I'm not like pro- a proponent of anyone doing them necessarily. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and I mean, like, do do you find that that those change of perceptions can can aid to that creative process with music and create something totally different and something creative, dude? From what you were previously mentioning, totally. I mean, a good example of that is weed. Um, I think smoking weed gives you like a second set of ears for the day in which you can use to reference your song for instance Mm -hmm. um you know you can work on everyone's had that experience i think where you work on music all day and then you're like fuck yeah this is sick and then you go to bed and you wake up the next day and you go like fuck this is terrible right like everyone's (laughs) had that experience or not everyone but like most most producers have had that experience it seems like um Mm -hmm. i think weed is really good in the sense that it can almost like get rid of the ability for you to need to sleep and wake up to sort of see the song a different way whereas you know usually if you're not smoking weed or doing substances Mm -hmm. it takes you like 12 hours to like walk away from the song go to sleep wake up come back and then you can have a different objective view on it right whereas Mm. getting high on weed you can be like instantly it can just snap you into a secondary objective mode (laughs) to hear this hear the song very differently do you, like do you find do you find like either sativa or indicas or or aid in that or is there is there more or less one that you find contributes to that part of it so i mostly am like a one to one thc to cbd guy um mm-hmm. and the thc side is usually sativa yeah okay but i mean i'm not opposed to either really yeah yeah, yeah i mean i i've never really experienced doing it that way like i have i have partaken in in weed before but i've never really you know i've never tried as tried using it as far as a means of working on music so it's it's definitely an interesting interesting thing to like approach and try so i yeah the piece of advice i would give is don't do it when you're first starting to write music in the sense that like you shouldn't get into the studio and it shouldn't be the first thing that you do you should like get an idea going and have the idea like you know work on it for a few hours and then smoke weed because if you like do it at the start it just fucks everything I've, I've found it's like really hard to get an idea into the box when you're high because you're just like this mm-hmm. is so overwhelming right whereas if there's already stuff there and there's just stuff to tweak it's like you can make decisions still and you can you can do those decisions but it's not like the whole job of making a beat or whatever which is kind of like a big undertaking hmm have you been more happy with the with the end product as far as like say working on something going to sleep and working on it again versus saying smoking weed and then working on it going to sleep and waking up and checking it out like do those do those end products improve with one of with one of the other avenues I mean I've had both right like I've had the experience where it's kind of like fucked the piece of music up and then other experiences where I think it's made it better um Tipper my buddy Dave Tipper he he said something pretty interesting or actually was it too mm-hmm. it might have been super i think it was super serious actually i said this it's another friend of mine he was um he said you're doing yourself a disservice 
by not listening to your music under different influences of different substances because at the end of the day if you're writing sort of psychedelic beats and like you know fucked up experimental music the people who Mm -hmm. are listening to it are going to be on substances right so it's like you should at least check out what that's like maybe to see like what's going on there and if there's anything you need to change to like make make it more you know conducive to being enjoyable under those substances and again i'm not a proponent for this at all i don't think any i'm not saying anyone should go out there and take drugs i'm just saying yeah. that i think that's an interesting idea mm. well i mean yeah i mean like I, I mean i guess like the electronic side of stuff it definitely seems like you know partaking in drugs at at the shows is quite a quite a ritualistic thing um, yeah it's common so yeah, commonplace I mean, yeah. for sure i mean like most people are going there are, are on not most people but a lot of people going are on drugs yeah mm. what like what like why do you think that 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 experience is is better like why do you think being under these influences do you think it sonically creates a better experience um i mean it depends right like it depends on the substance and the music and the setting and how you're doing emotionally yourself and all that kind of stuff i think it's Mm. like a huge mixture and it can definitely ruin music or it can make it way better or it can be somewhere in the middle it's like a whole continuum, I feel like. And and that, that exists for anything, right? It's like listening to drum and bass when you're super tired might not be as nice as listening to drum and bass when you, you're you very awake and having a you know good day where you feel emotionally pleasant. You can have like two mm. very different experiences with the same piece of music completely uh, disconnected from doing drugs at all, like just, just based on your state of being in other ways. Yeah, so like, like when you're producing you know your music say if you made a german bass track and then a dubstep track or something like that um do you find like it's it's easier and there's like not much backlash or, or hate or anything like that as far as jumping from different subgenres that far apart oh you mean like if i make different genres do my fans react negatively or positively to those yeah so I think for me, I'm pretty safe because I've I've done that my whole career anyway. So people just sort of expect of me to just do whatever, right? And it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like they care too much. Um, playing a show is different. Obviously, people at a show want to hear bangers usually. But uh, mm-hmm. I would say um, in terms of uh, like, you know, other artists doing that, for instance, a good example is Getter, right? Like he, he made dubstep he went really hard at the dubstep thing and the bro step thing and, and made like some pretty, pretty big hits in that realm, like the rip and dip stuff mm. or you know, whatever his other tunes were. And then he switched, right. And started doing this, like, like this rappy, like where he was rapping and it was like this sort of trip hoppy, like heady beat driven stuff. And he went and tried to tour it and his fans fucking hated it. And like, you know, he got like massive lashback. He got like cans thrown at him and shit and oh wow yeah he he canceled his tour halfway through and was just like fuck it i'm done fuck you guys like <laughs> try to do something new and different and creative and you know fulfilling for myself and you just th- throw cans at me fuck you guys so you know i think that does exist for sure but i'm lucky to be in a position where it doesn't exist for me yeah and like do you think do you think coming down to that is as well as diversing your fan base as you're mentioning earlier is like another thing that can that can help with that as well yeah, I mean, I think it's like you train your fan base whilst you're coming up, right? And I sort of trained my fan base when I was coming up to to just accept that I'm an artist who will do a trance song and then a down-tempo song and then a drum, a drum and bass tune and then I'll start making dubstep for a while and so on and so forth. So I think people at this point are mm-hmm. just like, oh yeah, it's Billy's an Ableton guy and he just does whatever. Um, mm. So that's that's fine. But like, you know, the, in that example with Getter, he very much trained his audience from the get-go to to respond well to um dubstep or or, you know that's kind of how he built his whole audience and so Mm. it uh you know didn't go well for him when he tried to do something else yeah why why do you think it might have worked with like someone like say daft punk um where you know initially what they started doing you know as far as like using the vinyls and sampling and stuff like that and then seemingly now i mean it's been a while since they put something out but like beyond that like every different album they put out it was like entirely different genres Mm -hmm. like why do you think that they might have not experienced anything like that well for starters they don't really play that many shows right it seems like so 
I mean, mm. Getter experienced this lashback at uh, at the show side of things, mm. not really on the internet so much as far as I know. Um, mm. And I mean, I still think Daft Punk, like, yeah, their albums were different, but it was still all like pop music, right? And it was still all this like sample heavy French electro sort of stuff. So it wasn't like a massive departure from what they're already doing. Whereas the Getter stuff was like a massive departure from what he was already doing. He went from like the heaviest of heavy bro step and dubstep and grindy, just absolute tear your face off shit to like this yeah. soft, like I'm going to sing really beautiful stuff over the top of these like and really heartfelt stuff over the top of these trippy sort of trip hop beats. And I, it was mm-hmm. just like the fans who are into the heavy shit are just absolutely not into this other genre. They don't care about it. They, they go into these shows to experience the tear your face off shit, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that definitely makes sense. Um, but yeah, we can, we can start wrapping it up, I guess. Um, is there, uh, is there anything that, that you want to, uh, you know, promote or anything like that? Is there any album stuff that you're working on? Is there any films or TV shows that you're working on that you can talk about? Um, I'm just working on music right now, trying to get new new stuff finished, like uh, an Electricado album and a Mr. Bill album. I'm trying to do more tutorials on YouTube, trying to get more into streaming and stuff, like just, just all the general coronavirus stuff that people are doing, I guess, um, mm. from the art perspective uh, as a producer. Um, other than that, I mean, if uh, other things I want to mention, I just want to apologize again for the K chaotic nature of me having to answer the door and all that sort of shit and my housemates walking through this just the nature of being in a lounge room so hopefully this isn't too hard to edit and uh hopefully it it turns out nicely and yeah i'm stoked to get it out and post about it and have people listen to it man but yeah just uh, thank you for having having me on for sure and i guess um, i'm sorry i was gonna say as well if people want to like follow me um just go to mr bill's tunes on all social media so instagram facebook twitter youtube whatever it's all slash mr bill's tunes uh and then or mr bill's tunes.com is my website so it's just mr bill's tunes everywhere and that's how you can find me but yeah thank you again man for having me on yeah and and what's absolutely and what's like the what's the best way that people can support you like what's the the most uh like financially beneficial thing for you at the moment the ultimate way is to go to my website, mrbillstunes.com and subscribe to become a hardcore Ableton there where I have like 80 plus hours of tutorial content, which are like large full length courses of me producing stuff from start to finish and explaining everything I'm doing along the way. Plus, um, I have sample packs there. There's like 20 sample packs that I've made there. There's uh, like 50 or 60 Ableton project files of finished release songs there that you can download and look through to reverse engineer and figure stuff out. Um, there's also my live stream VOD catalog there, which is like thousands of hours of live streams at this point that you can watch back if you want, um, like past broadcasts and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. and obviously all my tour dates are there and, and all that, but yeah, you can subscribe there for 15 bucks a month and that's the ultimate way to support me for sure. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thanks again for, for joining me. Of course, man. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. That was my conversation with Mr. Bill. Please go support him over at mrbillstunes.com. He has many, many hours of great video content exploring many great production tips and tricks and much more. You can find his music on all major music streaming platforms as well. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review, share it with your friends. It all helps grow the podcast. And if you have any questions, please email composersconcepts at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed listening and take care.